Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, a judicial crisis. Lawmakers convene to advance a backlog of nominations for the first time in five months. We just want qualified individuals who can make a decision so that people can move their lives forward. Plus, fighting words, calling the former president a bully and a dictator. Chris Christie lashing out at GOP frontrunner Donald Trump, hoping his attacks finally resonate with voters. I'm in this race because the truth needs to be spoken. He is unfit. This is a guy who just said this past week that he wants to use the Department of Justice to go after his enemies when he gets in there. I mean, the fact of the matter is, he is unfit to be president, and there is no bigger issue in this race, Megan, than Donald Trump. Also, the learning loss continues. New state test scores reveal a slight improvement, but wide gaps still persist for communities of color. Any kind of effort to do education recovery has to have the heft to be able to put us on an upward trajectory. And do not harm. Responsible prescribing is the first and best opportunity to stem the tide of addiction. A new initiative in Cumberland, Gloucester, and Salem counties explores new strategies to combat the opioid crisis. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Thursday night. I'm Raven Santana in for Brianna Venozzi. Lawmakers were back in Trenton today as the lame duck session continues in the State House. Outside, a coalition of activist groups rallied for the so-called People's Lame Duck Agenda, urging lawmakers to pass more than a dozen stalled bills that would address a range of social justice issues, including the creation of same-day voter registration and a permanent extension of the corporate business tax surcharge. That's money they argue the state could use for a good cause like funding and J-Transit. But inside, a different issue took center stage as senators considered new judicial nominations to address the long-running vacancy crisis in the state court system. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. I stand before you as the proud daughter of a Peruvian immigrant. Raquel Viejo told her personal story to senators poised to vote on her nomination to New Jersey's Superior Court. One of 11 new nominees approved today by the Senate Judiciary Committee, Viejo pointed out her 90-year-old mom in the audience. I was raised by a single mother who taught me the value of education, hard work, perseverance, and determination. Thanks to her sacrifices, I'm living proof that the American dream is attainable. She's over there. Where are you, Mom? Can she stand? I am the fruit of her labor, and I wouldn't be here today if she didn't have the courage to come to this country to give me a better life. Viejo is a matrimonial lawyer from Union County. If confirmed by the full Senate, she'd serve in the family division. Really a lot of experience in a tough area of the law. 
lots of folks don't love that assignment. I know she's going to embrace it if she gets it and, uh, and, and, and be an expert right off the bat. Lawmakers unanimously approved every nominee before them, 19 of them already seated judges up for renewal. But with New Jersey facing a crippling shortage of some 67 judges, the 11 new ones would finally start filling vacancies. Four counties have put civil and matrimonial trials on hold, Hunterdon, Somerset, Warren, and Passaic. It impacts custody and child support cases, says the president-elect of the Passaic Bar. The, the greatest percentage of people who suffer with this shortage are the children. They're forced to live in situations in which there is dysfunction, in which there is abuse between parties, and they are going, and we as a society, we're going to suffer the repercussions. Other than later, well, we certainly appreciate uh, the Senate president um, putting this huge group on today of reappointments and appointments, um, and we think it's going to make a big difference uh, moving forward. But it would still leave the bench 56 judges short, says Tim McGoffrin, who heads the New Jersey Bar Association. He says more are in the immediate pipeline. I know there's at least 10 or 12 that really should be put on the um, committee agenda, hopefully sooner rather than later. I can only confirm who's nominated, and we don't have any pending now. This, we just cleared the decks today. Senate President Nick Scutari bristles over the vacancies narrative, noting the judiciary also relies on recall judges returned to the bench to fill gaps. Sources confirm about 70 recall judges do work in the system, but they're just part-time. The vacancies remain at critical levels. Uh, the work that went into today's meeting went out all fall. So this, the prep work is really where all the work is. Um, and if somebody gets nominated by the, the governor, it's kind of not the end. That's more of the beginning of our process. New Jersey's Chief Justice has issued a dire warning to lawmakers to work faster and put politics aside as they work towards bringing the bench back up to speed. So it's a balance between you know, rushing to fill judges, judgeships, and making sure that the people are really, really screened. So I understand the concern, and look, we should go as quickly as we can. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we can move a little faster, but let me tell you, it is a, it is a very strenuous process, and it's, it works well when it works. The nominees still need to be confirmed by the full Senate. Its next scheduled session is Monday, December 11th. At the State House in Trenton, I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. The field of GOP presidential nominees is shrinking, and one who is still standing is Jersey's own Chris Christie. He was one of four contenders at the fourth Republican presidential debate. Last night, the former governor tried to take center stage by using the opportunity to take shots at his opponents, portraying them as immature and annoying, but also the only one taking aim at GOP frontrunner and former president Donald Trump, who was once again absent from the debate. I'm in this race because the truth needs to be spoken. He is unfit. This is a guy who just said this past week that he wants to use the Department of Justice to go after his enemies when he gets in there. I mean, the fact of the matter is he is unfit to be president, and there is no bigger issue in this race, Megan. Than Donald Trump. His attacks come on the heels of a new Monmouth poll that found Chris Christie the least popular GOP nominee among voters. Still, with polling numbers being low, many are questioning Christie's refusal to drop out of the presidential race. Joining me now to break it all down is political columnist at the Bergen Record, Charlie Style. Charlie, thanks for joining me. My pleasure.
all eyes on Christie last night after barely making it onto the stage due to his polling numbers. He is last in most polls. Did he make his case to the American people to stay in this race? I think he made the case of why Chris Christie uh, for his candidacy, the rationale for his candidacy as the Trump basher, the one who is going to speak in unvarnished terms, who's going to take his position or state his positions with clarity. Uh, I have my doubts whether that's enough for him to uh, stay in the race beyond New Hampshire, where he's uh, basically staked his entire campaign. Well, there were lots of calls this week for him to drop out and put his support behind Nikki Haley. Do you see that happening? I, I, I do see that happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way and, and the indicator or the tell, I would say, from the debate uh, was the way he came to her defense. Uh, it was a very impassioned, uh, responsible defense of her. While um, as Vivek Ramaswamy was, uh, you know, going at her hammer and tong, and in almost with misogynistic uh, yeah. uh, rhetoric and tones. Yeah. Uh, I his defense of her seemed to me he was sort of signaling that, you know, uh, he was opening the door to down the road, possibly uh, endorsing her or, or joining her team if he, he flails in New Hampshire. Yeah, definitely playing the game. To his credit, he is the only candidate taking on Trump. Last night, calling him a dictator, a bully, um, even an angry, bitter man. Is that resonating on any level? I think it resonates with the never Trumpers and there is a growing but not substantial enough number of we need somebody else uh, Republicans other, other than Trump. The problem is I, I think Haley has a good portion of those. She's starting to be the draw for that camp. Mm -hmm. And you do have Ron DeSantis who still has a, you know, a, a portion of that camp. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, I, I, I think that's where it resonates right now. And I don't, I don't think I don't think Christie is going to be able to galvanize enough of those voters with those two in the race. So what do you think his game plan is moving forward? No, I, I think his game plan is pretty close, is hoping to electrify that base, mm -hmm. hoping uh, uh, that there's enough of uh, discontent, a growing discontent uh, for Trump, and that they'll be looking for a, a genuine alternative, and that hope that Ron DeSantis proves to be not worthy to the task. And I think the, the early returns on that are showing that that is the case, and that maybe you know Nikki Haley is a flash in the pan, and he stands to be this bold. Uh, unvarnished truth teller um, who can who will be the uh, responsible alternative to Donald Trump if mm -hmm. Donald Trump crashes and burns under indictment. Right. I, you know, it's wishful thinking to me to see that scenario. It's a long shot. Well, we will have to wait and see Charlie Style. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're more than welcome.
And David Cruz continues the Christie conversation tomorrow morning on Reporters Roundtable, where he talks with Monmouth University pollster Patrick Murray. Plus, he'll have all the week's political headlines with a panel of local journalists. That's tomorrow at noon on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. A vigil last night with over 20 community organizations, including Students for Justice in Palestine at Stockton University, Drew, Princeton, TCNJ, and Rutgers, held in New Brunswick on Wednesday, honored the more than 15,000 Palestinians killed since October 7th by Israeli airstrikes. The organizers also demanded a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war, specifically targeting Congressman Frank Pallone, who has not yet called for one, and who last month attended the pro-war march for Israel in Washington, D.C. From London, I'm joined by Omar Shakir, the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, who investigates human rights abuses in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. Omar, today marks two months to the day of the deadly Hamas attack on Israel, and your group, Human Rights Watch, has repeatedly condemned the Israelis' retaliation on the Palestinian people that have resulted in over 15,000 Palestinian deaths. Do you see this as genocide? Is Israel committing apartheid or what? It's clear that the Israeli government is committing war crimes in the context of the current hostilities. Whenever you punish an entire civilian population, in the case of Gaza, more than 2.2 million people, half of whom are children, for the heinous acts of fighters, that is textbook collective punishment, which is a war crime, deliberately obstructing the entry of humanitarian aid, life-saving aid is a war crime. Starvation as a method or a weapon of war is a war crime. Human Rights Watch has documented that Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. This is not unique to the recent two months. Um, we've Our report on this was issued in 2021. We're talking about years-long systematic oppression of Palestinians, including those in Gaza, including the 16-year closure policy of Gaza, the generalized ban on travel. We're talking about a policy methodically to maintain the domination by Jewish Israelis over Palestinians when it comes to access to land, uh, resources, when it comes to the overarching uh, policy around freedom of movement, around legal status. These, This was happening Octo on October 6th, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the years before, and they continue. So we're seeing serious abuses. We've also documented war crimes by Palestinian armed groups, including the heinous October 7th acts. And we know that your ability to get your message out has been difficult. Your talk at the Columbia University Law School was canceled numerous times. The school claimed that there were security approvals that were not raised before. Do you believe free speech is being undermined on college campuses, especially around this issue? I certainly think when you see the climate in Europe and the United States around discussions of Israel-Palestine, it's very concerning. Mm -hmm. Human Rights Watch has documented how anti-boycott laws have been used to muzzle legitimate campaigns, activism discussions around business and human rights in the occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, in my case, I eventually was able to give the talk um, at Columbia. I've done so at Harvard, Stanford, University of Chicago. 
probably 50, 60 campuses over the last year. I've spent more time in the United States, but I'm you know, relatively privileged. And I think when you look at students, young faculty, we're seeing really alarming reports, student groups that are entirely banned from doing events, the doxing of students' trucks that are going around campus um, uh, showing students uh, and their personal information. You have job offers that have been withdrawn over free expression. You also have students that face legitimate concerns of um, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian, as well, well as anti Well, when we think about those concerns, Omar, this comes amid a larger environment of what some are calling censorship and people losing their jobs or speaking out in support of Palestinian rights or being called anti-Semitic. You know, so what are your thoughts on that? Why is that? Look, I mean, Palestine Legal, uh, U.S. human rights organization has talked about the Palestine exception to free expression. There has been a years-long tendency for students, faculty, others who speak out on Palestinian rights to be sanctioned for doing so. Sometimes it's event cancellations, but sometimes it is suspensions. It is people losing jobs. Um, and it is a product, I think, of a, a climate in the United States where sometimes speech for Palestinian rights, people are punishing it because they disagree on the substance. Omar, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. New Jersey students are rebounding from pre-COVID learning loss, but it's not enough, as wide gaps still remain. A new state student learning assessment found that black and Hispanic students, as well as English language learners, economically disadvantaged students, and students with disabilities fall below the average proficiency level. Melissa Rose Cooper reports on how the latest scores have prompted concerns among education advocates. I have no shock. I have no awe. Um, and really what we see, especially as it relates to third grade reading, which is a, a deep concern, is it remains unchanged. Troubling concerns for Paula White, executive director of Jersey Can, after learning the results of the most recent New Jersey student learning assessments. While the State Department of Education released its report showing an improvement of scores from 2022 to 2023, data reveals students are still struggling with learning loss since the pandemic. According to the report, only 51.3% of kids in grades 3 through 9 met proficiency levels in English language arts. That's down from 57.6% in 2019. The proficiency levels for math at 37.6% also causing worry, dropping from its 44% mark before the pandemic. What we know is that uh, when we talk about pre-pandemic levels, we were not in a fantastic place. And so any kind of effort to, to do education recovery has to have the heft to be able to put us on an upward trajectory and to build momentum year over year. And the way to do that is really to revamp our literacy infrastructure in the state of New Jersey to ensure that we have a level of fidelity around best practices as it relates to the science of reading. The assessment results also exposing alarming disparities when it comes to race. English, for example, 61% of white students uh, and 51% of all well, 51% of all students were proficient compared to just 37% of, of Hispanic Latino students and 33% uh, uh, of black students. So that, that's those are big percentage gaps. That's why Senator Vin Gopal and chair of the Education Committee says he's committed to pushing legislation and programs that will curb the learning loss gap. It's a high dosage tutoring, which I'm a big believer in, just kind of kicked off that that took a lot longer than it should have. Um, and there's a lot we need to do around that. Um, there's uh, 
a, a lot we can do in identifying students' needs uh, outside of the classroom. We know that uh, mental health challenges, things that could be happening in the household, food insecurity, these all play uh, a vital role in what's going on with a child's life while they're in the classroom. But Betsy Ginsburg of the Garden State Coalition of Schools says even though testing scores only slightly improved, the fact that they didn't stay flat or go down is a positive sign. I think the testing is going to continue to improve um, because we'll be farther away from COVID, students will be more receptive to learning. I think that the tutoring initiatives that the state has supported are a good, a good way of enhancing student learning. So I think to the extent that districts um, and the state can help with this, have the resources to continue the kind of supports that they use for students in years one and two out of COVID, if we can continue those efforts, that's probably the best way of addressing just a multitude of student issues, including learning. Child advocates say the testing results are proof more educational resources need to be available so all students can reach their full learning proficiency. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. In our Spotlight on Business Report tonight, a month-long strike by South Jersey electrical workers is over. IBEW Local 210, the union that represents about 400 linemen and other workers at Atlantic City Electric, ratified a new contract with the utility on Tuesday. The union had been on strike since November 5th, drawing the support of local elected officials like Congressman Jeff Van Drew and State Senator Vince Palestina. Atlantic City Electric had been relying on contract workers as replacements during that time. The union had demanded stronger health benefits and pensions along with new protections related to subcontracting work. The specifics of the new deal are unclear, but the utility has said it includes pay increases and more vacation time for workers. Turning to Wall Street, in anticipation of the monthly jobs report tomorrow, here's how the markets close today. Support for the Business Report is provided by Newark Alliance, which curates the Newark Holiday Festival, a collaborative calendar of holiday events in Newark's Arts and Education District. More details available at newarkholidayfestival.com. And join me this weekend on NJ Business Beat. I'll be highlighting the state of the Asian American and Asian Indian business communities, including the organizations supporting their growth and the challenges those business owners face starting and running their companies. Watch it on NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel Saturday at 10 a.m. Prosecutors in Cumberland, Gloucester, and Salem County are joining forces with the medical community to counter the opioid crisis in South Jersey. Part of the plan is to create a scholarship to encourage more doctors, nurses, dentists, and other providers to take part in a partnership for a drug-free New Jersey's Do Not Harm Medical Education course. The course offers opioid prescribing education to healthcare providers and trains doctors on the best practices on how to responsibly prescribe opioids for pain management, in turn breaking the cycle of addiction. Ted Goldberg has more. It's impossible to quantify the incredible losses that we have suffered. And I know that all of us have been to so many events um, uh, where we have 
uh, collectively mourned. Each one of those numbers is a life lost and a family shattered. And we will continue to do this fight with all of our partners. Prosecutors in South Jersey hope an online course for health providers can reduce overdoses from opioids. It's constant, it's daily, it's unchanging, unwavering really. Jim Baird works for Inspira Health Network in Mullica Hill. The addicted population is one of the most vulnerable populations I think that we take care of in the emergency department. Um, vulnerable for, for several reasons. Um, every community is different, um, but it comes from not being able to predict who is going to succumb to the disease of addiction. He says the opioid epidemic has changed, so healthcare providers and law enforcement have to change with it. Fentanyl has all these other what we call adulterants, all these other additives like uh, the street slang is trank or xylazine is the big one now. It's going to require an army of people to really come together as well as collaborating with law enforcement, uh, sharing data. We don't have access to a lot of data points that we need to effectively take care of this patient population. The course is provided by Partnership for a Drug-Free New Jersey. Executive Director Angelo Valenti says prescribers statewide have become more careful about prescribing opioids after taking this course. Here in New Jersey, over 95% of prescribers who have participated in a previous Do No Harm continuing medical education program reported that they learned best practices for prescribing and 90% of them said that this information helped shape the way that they provided prescribing in their own local practice. South Jersey seems to be an area where there's a bit of overprescribing of opioids by our doctors. We're one of the highest areas in the state. In Salem County, Prosecutor Kristen Telsey says half of the population is prescribed opioids. Responsible prescribing is the first and best opportunity to stem the tide of addiction. The course will be available to healthcare providers in Salem, Gloucester, and Cumberland counties. Our joint efforts can ensure that those who need those medications receive them in a safe, effective, and protected environment. Law enforcement leaders pointed out that this doesn't mean attention will shift away from arresting people who illegally sell opioids or smuggle them. Today's threat is really exasperated by all the M30 pills that are fentanyl that are coming out of Mexico. Make no mistake, arresting and prosecuting those organizations is an important part of harm reduction. But we all know we can't arrest our way out of it either. According to state data, the per capita prescription rate of opioids in New Jersey is less than half of its peak in 2015, when nearly 60% of New Jerseyans had a prescription. That number could go even lower, thanks to free programs like this one. In Mullica Hill, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. And that's going to do it for us tonight. But don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Raven Santana for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening and we'll see you here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.